2: On News Radio 680
1: WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, Doug,
2: what about in the investment planning arena? Are there any matters that you could bring to our listeners regarding investment planning?
1: Well, investment planning. You know, Linda. In today's complex financial marketplace, mutual funds offer investors a simpler, less expensive, and less time-consuming method of investing in stocks, bonds, government securities, than trading them individually. To understand mutual funds, let's explore six features. First, simplicity. Investors invest in the fund, and fund managers invest in the securities. So the first feature is simplicity. A second feature of mutual funds is diversification. By pooling shareholder dollars and spreading them over dozens of securities, the mutual fund can diversify its holdings. A diversified portfolio reduces risk should some investments turn sour and increases the chance of picking up potential winners. It's the old principle of not putting all your eggs in any one basket. So the second feature is diversification. A third feature is choice. A mutual fund investor has more options than ever before stock mutual funds, bond mutual funds, government bond mutual funds, tax-free mutual funds, to satisfy all outlooks from the most conservative to the most aggressive. Of course, generally speaking, intelligently assumed risk increases the opportunity for greater return. Mutual fund investors select a fund with an investment objective that most closely matches their own. For example, they may want to maximize their current income or maximize long-term growth or they may want some combination of growth and income. In addition, specialized funds are available. For instance, those that invest only in certain geographic regions of the U.S. or of the world, or certain industries, like healthcare, care, technology, or energy. There are even funds that have adopted certain social criteria for people who only want to invest in areas of the economy designed to help humanity. So the third feature of a mutual fund is choice. The fourth feature of a mutual fund is professional management. Once you've selected a mutual fund with your objectives, the investment decisions are made by the fund managers. These professionals decide when to invest the money. Money managers make these decisions based on extensive ongoing economic research into the financial performance of individual companies or individual bonds, taking into account general economic and market trends. After analyzing all this data, the manager chooses investments that best match the fund's objectives. As economic conditions change, the fund may adjust the mix of its investments to adapt a more aggressive or more defensive posture. So the fourth feature is professional management. A fifth feature is flexibility. While some investors prefer to pick a single fund and stick with it for many years, others look for a family of funds, a number of different mutual funds with different objectives all under one roof. In a family of funds, investors can switch from one fund to the other as their objectives change. For example, they might want growth of capital during their early years and then later, at retirement, want income from their fund. In a family of funds, they might have had a growth fund for years and now, with a telephone call, switch to a government bond fund paying monthly checks. Or they might have an interest in international investing and switch to a fund investing in European companies. So the fifth feature is flexibility. The sixth feature is liquidity. Mutual fund investors can cash in all or part of their shares at any time at that day's price. The fund is always ready to buy back the shares at the net asset value quoted in the daily papers. Basically, mutual funds offer just about something for everyone. Whatever your objectives, safety or income or growth or tax savings, mutual funds probably have something for you. If you've been curious about mutual funds, I hope my comments have helped. Remember, seek competent financial advice, and if you have any financial questions, just give me a call at 872-7000. That's 872-7000. And remember, your financial future is at stake. Let's take Henry's call. How can I help you?
3: I was interested in, uh, but not just for myself, but for others who talked, what does it cost to get a financial uh, planner, that is a certified financial planner, and how much? Money or assets, do you really need to, to, to uh, if, if, in order to hire one or employ one?
1: Well, let me say uh, at my firm, some of the people who come to see us for financial planning have, you know, maybe nothing but about a $30,000 CD and, and no estate of any sort, but they've got a series of other questions that have nothing to do with investments. Uh, They want to know about all kinds of things, cash flow planning or estate planning or tax planning or retirement or a a, a spouse who's dying or whatever. Uh Then on the other hand, I've seen people that have a $10 million estate. So I don't think finding a financial planner has anything to do with the size of what you've got. What it is, it's the size of your questions. Oh. <laughs> In other words, if you, if you feel that you've got significant questions, then you need a financial planner. If you think you know everything yourself and you don't need any help, then you don't need a financial planner. So I think that's the difference. Now, you may be thinking of a money manager. A money no, no, manager no. is very often confused as a financial planner. And unfortunately, many money managers advertise themselves as financial planners, and that is part of the dilemma. Uh, Money managers are different, and for a money manager, I would say you need to have at least $100,000 to be uh, considering a money manager. Now, many financial planners, including myself, do money management in addition to financial planning or part of the financial planning process. Uh, And and I just want to clarify those two things. On the other hand, there are many people who do only money management but call themselves financial planners, but they really are taking money under management. Oh, I see. There are three ways that people charge that do financial planning. One is what they call fee-only planning, mm-hmm. and these planners charge either on a pure hourly fee or on a flat fee for whatever you hire them to do. Uh, In our firm, we do both. We charge hourly fees. We also charge flat fees for some clients after I've met with them. Uh, Then there are other uh, financial planning firms that do what they call fee offset planning. And what they do is their compensation is received in the form of commissions from the sale of financial products, and they offset those commissions against the fees they charge for the planning process. And then there are those planners who work on a salary basis. They are paid as a salary for financial service institutions or they work for financial planning firms such as myself and they might be salaried planners. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, there are planners who are paid on a combination fee commission basis. The fee is charged for consultations, for advice. And for the preparation of the financial plan roadmap, either on an hourly or a flat fee basis. And then if you choose to implement the recommendations in that plan, then the planner may receive commissions from the products that you implement. I would say you should meet with a planner and you should get a copy of his form ADV, which discloses his fee arrangement, and then discuss with him and ask him how he is paid and will he be able to justify the fees that you'll be charged? Uh-huh. Does that help?
3: Yes, yes. Generally, if you had a choice between a 15- or 20-year mortgage and a 30-year mortgage, you're assuming your rate's going to be lower. Isn't it better to take the longer mortgage you can get, and then if you want to, you could double up or something? Though, I, Generally, if you've got a low interest rate, it's better not to double up, isn't it?
1: Really, I need to get into the specifics of a person. I have some clients that I recommend that they pay off their mortgage. Others, I recommend 30-year mortgages. I generally don't like the 15-year mortgage because if you're going to have a mortgage, I'd rather you pay the smallest amount and get the biggest tax deduction and plan on wiping out the mortgage in one big swallow, you know, one, one flat amount at a point down the road. But in the meantime, invest the difference and get it accumulating. Generally, I don't like the 15 year mortgages, and I never like the bi the weekly arrangements because they seem to uh, not work well. I, I hope well, that helps. You
2: have. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919 7000 That's 919 USA 7000. And I've reached my destination. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling, Henry. Take okay. care. Okay. Have
0: you checked out the website yet? It's DougandLinda.com. com. .com.
2: In the last several weeks, I've gotten a number of calls from people that have had some interest in finding out information about setting up a charitable trust. What exactly is a charitable remainder trust?
1: A charitable remainder trust is a tax-advantaged, irrevocable trust that can provide the client with a lifetime income and immediate tax benefits. That's quite powerful. A lifetime income, but immediate tax benefits. The trust principal is ultimately going to be paid to a qualified charity, which will be selected by the client himself. And Section 664 of the Internal Revenue Code provides the primary rules that govern charitable remainder trusts. When you say immediate tax benefits, what do you mean by that? You actually get a tax deduction for setting up a charitable remainder trust and funding it now even though the charity is not going to get its gift until maybe 30 or 40 years from now.
2: Okay. Well, does a charitable remainder trust offer other
1: benefits as well? Yes, it does, Lynn. Since the charitable remainder trust is an irrevocable trust, that means it can't be changed. The principal is not subject to probate or federal estate taxes in most cases or creditor claims. So it's a way of reducing the estate taxes and also a way of bypassing probate.
2: What type of client could benefit from a charitable remainder trust?
1: Lynn, a charitable remainder trust can benefit an awful lot of different types of clients for different benefits. But the first one that comes to mind is the client who has highly appreciated assets, who would like to increase their income, reduce their taxes, and are charitably minded, or any combination of these three. What's the first thing you think of as a highly appreciated asset, Linda? Real estate? Yeah. Highly appreciated is a fancy language for something that's gone up in value since you got it, or stocks. So those types of people immediately come to mind, those with highly appreciated assets who want to increase their income and reduce their taxes and are charitably minded.
2: For those of the folks that own a lot of farmland or inherited large parcels of property, That is one of the ways that they can reduce the estate, correct?
1: There's a big problem. It's called land-rich, cash-poor. A lot of folks are that way. And for folks that have a lot of land, there's no way for their heirs to pay those taxes after they die. They're prime candidates for charitable remainder trust.
2: Well, how soon will a charitable remainder trust generate income once it's established?
1: Actually, Lynn, a charitable trust can generate income almost immediately. We've had a number of clients this past year who want income to start right after they set up their trust. And so they start getting their trust to pay them income right away. And then it can continue on a monthly basis or quarterly basis for years and years and years or until the client dies, however he sets it up.
2: Once it's set up, can the income pass to the
1: children or to others? Yes and no, Lynn. The income, first of all, can pass to the children. A charitable remainder trust can provide income for the client's life Plus a term of years. But the IRS says that it can't be more than 20 years. So if you plan to set up a charitable trust and then you die the next year, you can set it up in such a way that the next 20 years of income will pass to your children. But you can't go beyond 20 years for the next generation.
2: How is the income that is generated by a trust
1: taxed? Well, Lynn... This is one of the most complicated things about charitable trust. It's what we call the four-tier accounting. The income that's earned by the trust and is paid to you is paid out, first, what's called ordinary income. Second, it's called capital gains income. Third, it's tax-free income. And fourth, it's return of principal. But the most common payments are plain old ordinary income, and you are taxed on them at ordinary income rates.
2: Well, how is the tax deduction calculated?
1: This is really unique, Lynn, because if you think of it, let's say you've got something. You've got a, a thing, a piece of real estate or a stock portfolio that you want to go ahead and give to a trust to one day go to a charity. The IRS formula is used to determine the future value of a present gift. The formula takes into account the present value of the gift and the donor's age and the income payment selected, And this criteria determines the value of the gift that's actually received at some time in the future by the designated charity. If you think of it, it's separating the income portion from the principal portion of an asset and agreeing to give away the principal and keep the income and then computing how much principal it's going to be worth when the charity finally gets it 20 or 30, 40 years from now and then reducing that back to present value and taking a tax deduction on that basis. That's very complicated, but it's a beautiful strategy.
2: Once a person sets up a charitable remainder trust, are the contributions to this trust revocable?
1: No, Lynn, they're not. And that's the real thing to recognize here. Since the Internal Revenue Service allows the avoidance of capital gains tax, and that's a powerful, powerful thing to say that the IRS will allow the avoidance of capital gains tax. That means you can sell something that you've made a profit on and pay no tax on the profit. But since the IRS allows that and also allows you to get a tax deduction, just like making a gift to a charity today, there must be an irrevocable guarantee that a gift will be received by a charity sometime in the future, and that promise must be irrevocable. So you cannot go ahead and set up a charitable trust, give something to it, get a tax deduction for doing it, And then change your mind and take it back.
2: Can more than one charity be named as a charitable beneficiary of a charitable remainder trust?
1: Absolutely, Lynn. You can set up multiple charities as what they call charitable remaindermen. Believe it or not, you can change your mind and set up a charitable trust for the benefit, let's say, of NC State today. And if you don't like the way the Wolfpack does one year, then you could change it over to another school or change it from one charity to another or one beneficiary to another. You can move the charity designations as often as you want over the life of the trustee.
2: So certainly uh, people that may be charitably inclined could contribute to their alma mater. To any of the universities or to a favorite charity. And then they would be the beneficiary of the assets in the trust when it ends, right?
1: Yeah, the charity becomes the beneficiary when it ends. But the beautiful part about this trust is that you, the client who sets it up, you keep all the income for the rest of your life and even for your wife or your spouse's life. You get the income. You don't have the tax problem. You get a tax deduction for doing it. You can sell stuff within the charitable trust and pay no capital gains tax. You can really design these in a very creative way.
2: And if this sounds familiar to your situation, call the office in Raleigh at 919 872 That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, what assets can be transferred to fund this trust?
1: Well, most any asset that isn't mortgaged. You can't put anything into a charitable trust that has any sort of what they call debt on it, so no mortgages. Anything other than that can be transferred into a charitable trust. There is caution, however, in transferring assets such as real estate and closely held stock. Very often, by the way, Lynn, this is a great thing to do with a small business owner trying to deal with what about the value of his business stock, of his company. You can transfer this in to a charitable trust. But these are all called the real estate, the closely held stock. These are called... Hard to value assets, and we need to have a lot of care and assistance in transferring hard to value assets into a charitable trust to get the proper valuation because you're going to go ahead and get a deduction today for the value that you set on this asset that you transfer into the trust. So you want to get a proper appraisal.
2: Well, Doug, can only a portion of a
1: particular asset be transferred into a trust? Believe it or not, Lynn, we can do that also. This can be accomplished with the charitable remainder unit trust, the client can choose to take only a part of their appreciated assets and put that into the trust. Let's say you've got a large piece of property. Matter of fact, we did that with one recently, with one client, and they had a large tract of land which their home was on, it was like a farm. And we drew an imaginary line, carving part of it off, and put one part of it into the trust and kept the other part out. The other part that we kept out, we called the home, and the part that we transferred into the trust We call this the gifted part and was able to avoid all the capital gains tax on the gifted part that we put into the charitable trust. So you can take half. You can do the same thing with business stock. Small business owner can put part of his stock in and keep part of his stock out. But then when you put part of an asset into a charitable trust, Lynn, you can at a later time add additional assets into the charitable trust, which will increase the income you're getting from this trust and also increase the amount of your charitable deduction, The charitable trust can really be an excellent vehicle for building retirement income by making annual contributions during a client's high earning years.
2: Can a client be his own trustee?
1: Yeah, Lynn. Very few people realize, and actually, if you were to ask 10 attorneys, probably nine of them would tell you the answer to your question is no, but they're all wrong. Believe it or not, you can be your own trustee. The IRS does not mind. A donor can be his own trustee. However, a donor may want to consider having a co-trustee or a subsequent trustee in the event that they become incapacitated.
2: Well, Doug, why would a person want to be their own trustee?
1: If you set up a trust and you own something and you give it to this trust, let's say it's your real estate, then even if the trust doesn't give it to the charity until after you die, it's the trustee who controls it during your lifetime. So the trustee is the crucial player here. Traditionally, banks, trust companies, and charities served as the trustees to be sure that all elements of the money management and the administration were handled properly. With this arrangement, however, the donor, that's the client, had little or no control over the investment objectives, and they really had no recourse, Lynn, if he or she was dissatisfied with the money management or the administrative services. So the whole key is to be your own trustee so that you control it, and then to sub out, if you will, or hire out an independent administrator to do all the day-to-day details of tax reporting and so forth. But you be your own trustee. That's the one that I recommend for all clients.
2: Okay. And are there any ongoing costs with a charitable
1: remainder trust? Well, there are ongoing costs. Lynn, uh, there's the annual tax filing. It doesn't have to be too high. And there are the asset valuations, which may or may not be required. And then there's the administration cost. But generally. You can think about one-third of 1% is about how much it will cost for the ongoing administration of a charitable trust.
2: Well, Doug, it sounds fantastic as a financial planning tool. How do we summarize the features for different types of people?
1: Well, and for different people at different times in their lives, a charitable trust can mean a great deal. It can be the difference between taking advantage of all kinds of benefits or just letting them pass by. For example, for one individual it could mean the ability to build a retirement income supplement that's not restricted by the per year limits. So we could be putting in more than the maximum they can put into a retirement plan. That's for that individual looking for retirement income. For the individual, on the other hand, who's at or near retirement, it's a way to convert highly appreciated assets, but still ones that are producing low income. Let's say it's like farmland or stock portfolio, It's a way to convert them to much higher income-producing assets without having that principle eroded by paying a capital gains tax so you can sell something tax-free. Now, for individuals selling highly appreciated stock or real estate or business interest or any other assets at any time during their life, it means the ability to avoid the capital gains tax and increase the total economic benefit by reinvesting all of the proceeds from the sale, not just the after-tax proceeds, and Lynn. Lastly, for people who have a desire to maximize their ability to contribute to a favorite charity, it's a way to leverage their charitable contribution. Not everybody is going to have all of these situations occur in their life. But on the other hand, one or two of those will probably happen to most people. So the charitable remainder trust, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful financial planning tools that's available today.
2: But isn't it very important that you uh, really research the matter? I know... I've gotten some people that have called in at the office that say, well, they went to a seminar about charitable trusts, and they want to know about living trusts, and should we have one? And I'm all confused. They
1: are confused. <laughs>
2: and, you know, I I sympathize for all those people because, you know, people get taken in by going to seminars and listening to, to this and that, but you really do have to do your, your research and um, and also work with uh, an estate planning expert as well, Correct.
1: Well, Alexander Pope never knew about financial planners, but he did say a little learning is a dangerous thing. Taste deep or drink not of the Pyrian spring. Uh, He could have just as easily said, watch out, you can get in trouble. Living trusts have nothing to do with charitable remainder trust. They can confuse you. They have no tax benefits. They're wonderful tools, but that's a very different animal than the charitable trust. And you're right, Linda, people do get very confused.
2: To any of our listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA-7000. If you have some financial planning concerns or questions about your situation, get a notebook and start jotting down some of those questions and work with a financial planner.
1: Hi, Bill. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you? Hi, Hi Doug. How are you? All right. Good. Good.
0: Uh, wanted to know if I can re- take retirement early here.
1: Okay. Uh, first question is, what does your wife say about it? <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You know, one of the questions I get so often when I got him and her sitting in front of me and they're asking the question, can we do it? Uh, after we go through all the number questions, she says, I'm not sure I could handle him being around the uh, house all day long.
0: <laughs> I, I, I heard a story about that,
1: but
0: i anyway, here's the situation. Go ahead. Uh, I would, would like to be able to retire uh, uh, on an income of, say, 65000 before tax.
1: Okay, how'd uh, you get that number?
0: Well, th- that's what I feel. Uh, that's just th- something I feel that we'd be comfortable with. And, hmm. and that would be without having a mortgage and without having any other uh, okay. outstanding payment. Our situation is we've got $700,000 in a portfolio. It's all blue chip. It's a uh, very low cost basis. And uh, it it probably yields about two point four percent a year, which isn't much, obviously. Right. We've got a uh, hundred thousand IRA,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and then there's another three hundred thousand in a trust fund, also blue chip that yields about eight thousand a year. That, that the principal cannot be touched uh, for another uh, about ten years, uh, and then and then that's the whole thing is ours.
1: The big question that you're facing, of course, is the capital gain on the seven hundred thousand. Yep. I uh, you said you've got a low cost basis. Do you know how low it is? Incredibly low.
0: Maybe 300,000 on right. a 700,000 portfolio.
1: Okay. So if we're looking at we're looking at a $400,000 capital gain, if you simply go ahead and redesign your investment portfolio, yep. You're going to pay 150,000, $145,000 in taxes mm-hmm. to move from point A to point B. Yep. How old are you, Bill? 56. 56. What's your health like? Uh, excellent. John Golf. All right. all that stuff. How about your wife?
0: She's in excellent health too. All
1: right. Her age? Sixty. Sixty. What's the rest of the assets look like? What's the total estate look like?
0: Uh, probably have uh two hundred and fifty thousand equity in the home, uh, antiques another couple hundred thousand. You know, maybe another four hundred thousand. All right, so
1: five hundred thousand, five and seven. Future inheritance 12, of probably seventy five. 13, 14, 15, 16. And this $300,000 trust is going to come into your hands anyway. Yep. All right. So you're looking at about a $1.6 million estate. That's exactly correct. Yeah. All right. And of course, if things go well, if you have proper money management, this is going to grow. Then looking at it from your side, from the retirement side, you want to go ahead and get maximum income by redesigning your investment portfolio. But on the other hand, you're faced with an income tax problem. All right. The solution is the Section 664 trust. Now, you can set up a Section 664 trust and move the 700000 into this trust and then sell everything in that trust and pay no capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. There are also tax benefits in doing it. One benefit is that you get a tax deduction for doing it in the year that you do it. Yep. Uh, so you could go ahead and keep the entire 700000 intact. And do the IRA? That's eight hundred thousand. And those two eight hundred; those two could give you. And you need sixty-five thousand before or after taxes. Before. Before taxes. Okay. So uh, we want eight. We want sixty-five thousand divided by eight hundred thousand. We want. Yes, you can do that. Yes, you could do that today. You could. You could. You could retire today. Now, the trade-off here in doing it today is that you have effectively disinherited your two children of $700,000 if you stop at this point. Yeah. So then what happens next is you can set up a second trust, a wealth replacement trust, and put a $700,000 life insurance policy in this second trust that will then give the children the $700,000 that you deprive them of. Uh, the premium would be? The premium would be probably negligible. your At your age, a second-to-die policy for $700,000 is dirt cheap. Yeah. Not only that, you would have the premium paid by the income from the first trust. Okay. The nice part of the equation is you've also saved all the estate taxes. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so you could work the three pieces all together. They're very complicated. They're wonderful, wonderfully fun to do. When you really, I mean, I do lots of these, and I really enjoy them because they're they're fun. You play all the pieces together. You can really get creative because you want to do a couple of things. Number one, you want to make sure that you are your own trustee of this trust.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Number two, you want to maintain control all the way through the entire process, yeah. and you are allowed to do so. Uh, if you can find an independent administrator. Now, the administrator does the reporting to the Internal Revenue Service to make sure there's no hand, you know, yep. dipping, you know, your hand in the honeypot. Yep. Uh, but you can work these things in such a way that they are uh, the the most uh, sophisticated financial planning tool and the most uh, uh, advanced financial planning tool still left to us under current laws. And they've been around since the late 60s. A lot of people don't know much about them.
2: There's one brochure I'd like to send to you if you'd like to call the office Okay. And it kind of discusses a little bit about this charitable trust strategy, about the 664 Trust. Okay. It's a wonderful strategy. It provides uh, some wonderful solutions for people that have a problem like yours. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like that brochure, just give me a call at the office. Okay. Okay, and yeah. that number in Raleigh is eight seven two seven thousand. 7000 872-7000. Okay. That's USA 7000. Great. Thanks for your call. Well, thank you very this much. I appreciate it. Okay. Yeah, bye-bye. All right. You're listening to Money Matters. That was that was really an enjoyable call. uh, Yeah,
1: uh, because he's got he's got a set of issues there that dovetail into each other. Mm -hmm. And um,
2: and usually when folks have uh, wealth or have accumulated wealth or appreciated assets, they run into a real
1: yeah. he's He's right at that midpoint of low wealth where he doesn't have a looming problem, he's not an extremely wealthy person right now today. He's got, he's got a comfortable asset of assets at 800,000, but he's not sitting there at five or seven million. On the other hand, he's young enough that with proper money management, he knows that that can grow to be that.
0: Have you checked the Lewis Financial Management website? Go to DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com.
1: This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner, answering all of your money matters. Well, Doug,
2: you know a disabled child really adds uncertainty to estate planning. Wouldn't you
1: agree? Disability, I really would, Linda. You know, questions like, will your child who's disabled be able to function as a fully independent adult or need some form of continuing care? Will he be able or eligible for government funding or capable of holding a job? And where will he live when you're no longer there? These are big questions.
2: Dealing with such uncertainty often turns estate planning into an emotional arena for parents who have disabled children, right?
1: That's right. It's important, Lynn, to recognize that the disabled child likely will continue to need assistance long after the parent's death. And that means that you really do need a plan.
2: And, Doug, you know, for folks that do have disabled uh, children, it's best to start with the the plan with a destination in mind and basically decide where you would like your children to be if you died tomorrow and
1: work from there. Wouldn't you agree? Right. Start by making a will, but in deciding how to divide your assets, take into account government funding, because government programs are necessary for many disabled people since care is expensive and can rapidly deplete a family's finances.
2: And, you know, Doug, the the answer for these folks with regard to their estate planning is, uh, for most, the answer would be a special needs trust. Uh, when such a trust is properly crafted, such a trust not only protects access to government funding, but it also creates a whole management system that will support your child, correct?
1: Mm-hmm. The trust itself, Linda, must be specifically created, however, to be supplemental, providing only extras for the child. Health, welfare, and support, those three words are the killer words. If those words appear in the trust document, then it won't work.
2: So basically what we're looking at is that a person has to assume responsibility. And before creating this special needs trust, the family needs to decide on some very important issues, right? The first being that uh, they need to decide who will assume the responsibility for their child after the parents die. And family members are often the best option Uh, But it's important to name many backups if you have several children or relatives that you would name as backups uh, as options to take care of your child. And you also need to allocate responsibility in such a way that it matches up with the strengths and weaknesses of individual family members so that you avoid burning out specific family members in the process, correct?
1: Of course, in some cases, there are no family members. And at that sort of situation, you have to turn to professional trustees like banks And banks very often have social workers and private care managers on staff. But I agree, first you should have family members as the ones who assume the responsibility, and that should be written, of course, into the trust.
2: We're talking about disabled children and how they can add uncertainty to your estate planning. Another important issue that needs to be considered is how to allocate family resources. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah, the problem here is that what's fair isn't always equal. In many cases, the disabled child may simply need more. And the way to handle that really is to have a frank discussion with other members of the family in laying out the the plan, questions like how much is enough. Well, that really depends on both the severity and the type of disability. You want to start by looking at the current cost and then factor in inflation.
2: You know, Doug, also in considering where the money to fund such a trust is going to come from, Often an insurance policy is a wonderful solution and uh, people generally look to last to die policies because they're cheaper and the benefits aren't paid until the second parent dies. Uh, Also, the funds will be available when it's needed for the child, correct?
1: The trustees can minimize the problem by keeping the money out of the hands of the beneficiary and trustees and others who assume the responsibility for a disabled child really are going to find that they need a wealth of information to avoid all of the traps that are out there. And that's one reason why most financial planners, advisors who work in this area, recommend that parents should write a letter of intent, clearly outlining the child's history, setting priorities for care and services, and even discussing their own hopes and expectations.
2: You know, Doug, when I was working as a speech therapist, I worked with a lot of disabled uh, and handicapped individuals And if you're a parent and you're listening to our show right now, write down your questions. And the bottom line is, if you do have a disabled child, work with a financial planner that can help you work through what the special needs of the child are and how to uh, effectively take care of these matters with regard to your estate planning.
1: If you would like to call our offices during the week, our office number is 919-872-7000, 919-USA-7000. DJ, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? I have a
3: question about IRA. All right. Uh, I have an IRA and uh, had it in a CD, so I decided to switch it over to a broker who handled it and put it in treasury notes. All right. The question I have is, could the values fluctuate from time to time and would, uh, what are your thoughts on To keep them until they expire, or to try to sell them before they expire, or what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, let me find out a little bit about you, DJ. How old are you? 71. You're 71 years old, and you're already taking from your IRAs. Correct. Uh, How much do you have in your IRAs altogether?
3: Uh, I'd say about, I have an IRA with the Treasury notes. I also have a SEP IRA, and I think the total would be... Uh, 180
1: thousand. So now, uh, is the entire 180 thousand invested in treasuries?
3: No, uh, about 130 is invested in treasury notes.
1: 130 in treasury notes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they notes or are they mutual funds of treasuries? They're notes. They're notes. Yes. They're not zero coupon treasuries. No. Okay. What other income do you have that you're living on?
3: Well, I have a pension.
1: All right. And how much is your pension?
3: Oh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about. Uh, Fifteen hundred
1: a month, about. All right, so about eighteen thousand a year, fifteen hundred a, yeah. a month on your mm-hmm. pension. Any other income? Oh, you got Social Security, of course. Social Security. And yeah, what does that amount to? Oh, about eight
3: hundred and something, about eight fifty, something
1: like that. Eight fifty. So you're getting about another ten thousand mm-hmm. from your uh, Social Security. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that your total income, or do you have an investment income?
3: Uh, I have a few uh, other uh, self annuities. But right. not, not very not very high numbers.
1: All right. So now the income from your pension and your social security that runs maybe close to thirty thousand a year. Does yes. that cover your expenses? Yes. Mhm. You're still married? Yes. All right. What's going to happen after both you and your wife pass away?
3: It goes to the beneficiary.
1: Which are children? Children. What's the value of the rest of your estate approximately?
3: It'd be less than six hundred thousand.
1: The goal for the IRAs sounds to me like you're designing it mainly for wealth accumulation, taking out the minimum so that when you pass away, if your wife needs to, she's got the maximum there, and when she passes away, the maximum would pass to your children.
3: Yeah, well, plus the fact that something happens, a major illness or anything like that, I have a backup.
1: Very good. Mm -hmm. I would prefer that you be in wealth accumulation vehicles for managed monies. But I would have managed pools of money rather than just individual pieces of paper, which is what you've got. Mm -hmm. So what you should do, you should meet with a certified financial planner to design an asset allocation model. They should be combined into one IRA rollover account. I would say with 180 total, you could pick maybe nine $20,000 investment pools, so maybe nine different funds and you should have them worked out in such a way that, you, that, that you're comfortable, you understand them and that you have someone who's impartial designing it for you. Now, the second thing that you need to be aware of is the real risk that I see and that's the question of the income tax coming on the IRA mm-hmm. after you and your wife die. Mm-hmm. Even if you were to die today. Mm-hmm. There would be about $70,000 of taxes that would go, even if both you and your wife were to die today. Uh There is a solution to that that I should alert you to. Okay. Not many people know about this solution. A Section 664 trust will work for an IRA beneficiary, and the way you do it is you establish such a charitable trust today, and you fund it with the minimum. Uh Let's say you set up such a trust, and you fund it with maybe $2,000, Mm-hmm. Then what you do, you establish the beneficiary of your IRA after your wife becomes the beneficiary to be this charitable trust. If in that case, let's say it did grow to be 400000 then the entire 400000 would go straight over to this charitable trust. Mm-hmm. Then the charitable trust has beneficiaries of itself. And because it went to a charitable trust, there would be no estate tax and no income tax paid on it. You would invo- your, your children would avoid 100% of the income tax and the estate tax. So
3: who would be the charitable trust? Or ever?
1: The charitable trust would be a trust account run by your children. Oh, I see. For the benefit of some charity oh. after your children have died.
3: Well, after the children die.
1: So they could actually have a pension for themselves for the rest of their lives. I see. And this is the only way that you can avoid the the this this double taxation on IRAs, mm-hmm. uh, and you should be alerted to that because very few people know that the problem is coming, and of those that know, even less know that there is a solution. Uh, it is the concept of social capital that Linda and I talk about all the time on the air. How the IRS lets you do good and receive good for yourself by helping others.
3: Mm-hmm. And who has set up the 664 Trust?
1: Well, uh, there are certain professionals that work in that area. I am one of those professionals. I set those up for my clients. Uh, I generally will bring in an expert attorney to do the drafting of the document. I do the design of them. Mm-hmm.
2: This is an invaluable tool. And essentially what happens is it's a win-win-win situation. You mm-hmm. control what we call social capital. You still maintain the control of what you otherwise would pay as taxes to Uncle Sam.
3: And once the trust is set up, then it cannot be changed?
1: The trust cannot be changed in it terms okay. of uh, – it can be only be changed according to the, the rules that you wrote into the trust document and gave to the trustee. I see. The trustee, of course, would be your children. Right. So, uh, you, but the children can be given the right to change from one charitable beneficiary to the other.
2: Right, you can change. The can children add on can. Charities. The
1: children can be the benefit. Can be given the power to mm-hmm. change investments. Actually, they control all the investments.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the only thing the children can't do is they cannot dip in and take out their principal and give it to themselves as principal. I see. But on the other hand, if you figure, well, gee, I was going to lose. The kids were going to miss three hundred thousand out of four hundred anyway. Mm-hmm be much better to have them controlling 400 than losing 300.
2: Well, we've sure enjoyed your call, D.J., and if you'd like further information, just give me a call at the office, and that number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. Okay. All righty? Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks Um, for calling. All right. Let's take another call,
1: Doug. Joyce, are you there? How can I help you? This is Doug Lewis.
2: Hi, Mr. Lewis. Uh,
4: My question is this. If you have the funds to pay a vehicle off, would it still be profitable to go ahead and put the money in the bank and let that draw interest or pay cash for it or run it through a lease? Do you understand what I'm saying?
1: Let's walk through it slowly, Joyce. You're saying if you have the money to pay off a car. I guess you mean a car loan.
4: Uh, Where we're in business. And we have a lot of equipment. Well, what we've done is put the money in the bank, although we're still leasing it. Would it be better just to go on and totally pay all those vehicles off and have them debt-free?
1: Now, wait a minute. Hold hold, hold, hold it. You said you're leasing the cars. There's no debt if you're leasing them.
4: Well, it's a lease with a dollar in buyout.
1: All right. so So you're not buying the cars. You're leasing them.
4: Correct. Would it be better to go ahead and pay them off? and get out of the leases now, or go ahead and fulfill the end of the lease?
1: Well, what's the dollar payoff? A dollar. No, but I mean if you pay them off now ahead of time, do you save anything?
4: You would uh, save the interest that's accumulating. Isn't that right, Ryan?
1: Well, no, on a lease there is no interest. On a lease you're paying lease payments. I, I think you're confusing purchasing on time versus leasing.
4: I think I am also.
1: In other words, let's say you buy yourself a Lincoln and put it in the company's name and you're paying for it over time. All right. Well, you've got a down payment and you're making principal and interest payments. And if you pay off that note ahead of time, then you stop the interest payments. Okay.
4: Well, if let's you go to another one right quick so I don't run out of time. If you're going to buy a house, let's go this route. I've got it's basically, basically the same question I'm asking. All right. If you're going to buy a house and you have the funds available to pay the house off and pay cash for it, right? would it be more profitable to put the money in the bank, let it draw the interest, and get your benefits from the government, you understand what I'm saying, right. your taxes, or to pay the house off as you go into it?
1: Okay, well, I think you confused the two issues. Let's straighten them out because it's a good question. I think your question is, should you pay cash for your house or finance it?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that your question?
4: My, my question is, should you pay cash for everything and, and not have any finances, any borrowed money whatsoever what I'm trying to get to.
1: Right. Well, it depends on your situation. Do you have high or low taxes?
4: High taxes right now.
1: If you have high taxes and if you purchase a home for cash then you hurt yourself in two ways. Number one, you're not allowed any tax deduction for buying the house for cash, and you're not allowed any tax deduction for uh, for making your payments as you go along because there are no payments. And under the present tax laws, the only two real benefits to you to help you reduce your taxes significantly at all are home mortgage interest and charitable contributions. Okay. So if you want to go ahead and reduce your taxes that makes uh, a plus for uh, financing your home and and making the principal and interest payments over the next 30 years or whatever and then you get a deduction that does something else for you on the financial side it frees up cash to be invested somewhere else to also pay the mortgage or accumulate for retirement now having said all that if you are in a low tax bracket and you don't need tax reduction, and if you have a hard time making ends meet, then for comfort, it'd be to your benefit to go ahead and pay cash for the house. What kind of income do you all make?
4: 175000 hundred and seventy five plus.
1: Well, if you make one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars, are are your living expenses below one hundred and seventy five thousand? Yeah. Okay. So you don't have any pro- you wouldn't have any problem making mortgage payments. Yeah. All right. If you wouldn't have any problem making mortgage payments, then you can you get a double whammy by financing the house. Number one, part of your mortgage payments every month, about one third, are paid for by Uncle Sam. About one third of every payment you make on your mortgage payments are going to be taken off of your taxes at the end of the year when you run the computations. And the other thing is. Let's say you have a hundred and seventy-five thousand-dollar home or a two hundred thousand-dollar home. You get hundred and and you put twenty thousand down and finance one hundred and sixty. That leaves one hundred and eighty thousand dollars to put into a nice safe investment that's also compounding for you for your retirement. And then when you go ahead and start and, and take retirement, that's the time to when your income drops to pay off the house then. You see what I'm saying?
2: Uh, I do, but I needed to hear it. If I can provide any more information for you, you can call the office at eight seven two seven thousand. 7000 That's USA 7000. We're here in Raleigh. I'll be happy to either send you some information or see what we can do to answer any more questions that you might
1: have. Very good. Thank you so much. You're sure welcome, Joyce. Call again. I'm glad you're listening. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the money matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake.
0: You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 6.05 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.